0: I'm Alan Miller, co-founder of the Together Declaration, and I'm really excited today because uh, I'm lucky enough to be talking to Professor Jay Bhattacharya, one of the co-founders, the co-creators of the Great Barrington Declaration, along with uh, Dr. Sunetra Gupta uh, and um, Martin Kordoff, but also Jay Bhattacharya has uh, a position at Stanford University uh, at the Center for Demography could you give us a bit of an insight into kind of what led up to the Great Barrington Declaration and how you kind of you're involved? Just give us a little bit of an insight into that and how that came about, if you would, please.
1: In the early days of the pandemic, I was looking at the, the, the spread of the disease through China, and it actually reminded me of the H1N1 um, epidemic in 2009 where there were so many infections that we didn't know about in the early days. The cases were just a small fraction of the number of, of infections, it turned out. And the disease was turned out to be less deadly than we initially feared. And I was looking at the data out of China. Uh, it seemed like the, the, the spread into Iran very, very early on in the pandemic. I think it was like February uh, 2020. And I realized this was not a, a disease that we could stop from spreading through the world. It was it would already spread through the world. Although the World Health Organization and other countries, many countries, decided that they could somehow eradicate a disease that that spread so easily, uh, I ran a study called a seroprevalence study, measuring antibodies in the population in Santa Clara County and LA County in California, where I live, um, and uh, we found that in April of 2020, almost three to four percent of the population already had evidence of antibodies. It was too late then to stop the spread from 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 going everywhere. Uh, I mean, it was right, right around April, late April, that I started to think about uh, what alternate strategies. And I, you know, I, the obvious one is since this disease is such a deadly disease for older people, focus our attention on them. Focus our resources and ingenuity on on protecting older people from the disease. Don't disrupt the lives of younger people who aren't really particularly affected by the disease relative to the, the harm to old people, but are hurt by the lockdowns that we adopted. Closing schools, I think, was the biggest catastrophe that we've uh, public health catastrophe. Uh, peacetime in my lifetime. A billion children worldwide have missed two years of school. And many of them will never come back. A huge driver of inequality, uh, poverty. I mean, it's going to be, a, I think an unfolding disaster over decades. So the Great Brant Declaration came in October of 2020, when Martin Kuldorf invited me and Sunetra Gupta, who's a professor at Oxford, uh, probably the world's best epidemiologist, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. That's why it's called the Great Barrington Declaration. And then we signed, uh, we, we, we realized we come to the same place, right? Focus protection for the old and other vulnerable people. And for the rest, lift the lockdown because they were doing more harm than good.
0: What does the shielding look like? Uh, and how does that happen? Because they say it's all very well saying that and let everyone get on with it, but what, how, what is it? So can you just explain that a little bit, please?
1: Focus protection is a very local thing, right? It cannot, there's not a single answer because the living circumstances of people are so, so wide and varied. Um, so it's going to mean something very different in a care home in, in London than it will for a single a single elderly person living alone in, in rural Montana. So it has to be something that is locally designed, uh, understanding the needs of the community, the people there. It requires an all-of-public-health approach. So really what the Great Branting Declaration was, in some sense, was a call for local public health to engage creatively about how to protect vulnerable people. We knew who they were you know, for instance, we could have organized societies, rich societies could organize so that uh, we deliver food to older people, so they don't have to go to the grocery store at all uh, during times of high community spread, or reorganize how we provide care in nursing homes. A lot of the problem nursing homes was staff would come into nursing homes out back in the community every day. Well, why not organize it so that a care in nursing homes was actually a residential thing. So, if you're working as a staff in nursing homes, you, you live there for a month or two. And then you can, you know, you obviously can go home for, for a while with, with lots and lots of testing. Um, each, of these, each of these are small things, but in some, I think would have made an enormous difference. We just, the, the problem was, Alan, was that we thought, like public health thought, that the only way to protect the vulnerable was by, by reducing community spread or by we were getting rid of community spread. That's the only way to protect. And they essentially decided that it was impossible to protect the vulnerable a priori, and then adopted a strategy that was impossible. We have no technology to stop the spread of this disease, not, not lockdowns, not, uh, not vaccines, uh, no technology we have allows us to stop the spread of disease. Nor nor do we have a technology that allows us to eradicate the disease. We have to come to, we needed to come to terms with that in 2020, rather than adopting these futile strategies, we should have poured our energy into thinking about how to protect vulnerable people better.
0: Just to focus on why do you think the decisions were made in the way they were versus what you're talking about, regional, localized, rational engagement from that point of view? What's your thought on that?
1: The central authorities in public health, the World Health Organization in the U.S., the U.S. CDC, in the U.K., maybe SAGE, their advice to governments was very narrow-minded, Alan. Uh, the problem was that they excluded vast uh, realms of knowledge and expertise from consultation in the decision-making they made. During the pandemic, those central authorities have elevated to the top uh, expertise in epidemiology or virology, or immunology. But in fact, lockdown is a whole-of-society kind of intervention. I mean, it's really important to understand why it failed. It failed because societies are unequal. And that means that we are unequal in our capacity to comply with lockdown orders for extended periods of time. It's not a fault of people. It just is a fact about the way the world works. And so you had a situation where... People were imposing policies that were just inhumane given the living circumstances of, of the people of the world. So, you know, Peru, they got one of the harshest lockdowns in the world. Millions of poor people starved. Uh, the UN did a report in March of 2021 saying that 230,000 children had died of starvation in uh, in South Asia by March of 2021 because of the lockdowns, not because of COVID. COVID doesn't cause starvation, it's the, it's the, it's the policy response. In rich countries, uh, you like take the United States, only 30% of people have jobs that could actually be replaced by work from home. It was a cruel policy that was essentially aimed at protecting a certain class of people, the richer people, uh, I call them the laptop class. And that's why lockdowns failed. The fear drove decision making at the highest levels. The expertise was so narrow that there wasn't people there to push back against the fear. It turned into a just a logistical problem about how to get enough ventilators. Uh, out, out in the public or how to how to clear hospital beds, right? The, the focus became mon- monomaniacal. How do I avoid overwhelming hospital systems um, rather than holistic? How do I protect the vulnerable? Um, it's because of, of such a narrow range of expertise. Um, you know, if, if you have decision makers in place who understand that there's going to be panic and fear, you can address it up front. Instead, what happened was the decision makers decided that fear was a virtue. They, uh, in the UK, there was a, a body of part of SAGE, called it the Nudge Unit, I guess, um, that actually adopted propaganda to create fear in the population. But Tony Fauci told Scott Atlas in the White House, uh, Scott Atlas was an advisor to President Trump in the White House, that it was a, people weren't scared enough. The, the New York Times published a piece arguing that panic was a good thing. And in fact, what, what it led to was very, very poor decision-making. Uh, in Quebec, there were nursing homes where the staff abandoned the nursing homes, leaving the older people to starve, to, to, die, to die of thirst. Uh, you, you had uh, this kind of panic is emblematic of sort of a, fi- a, a deep failure. And then and you didn't have other voices at the table. They were pushed aside. They're censored, uh, n- not allowed in saying, okay, look, we need, we need a different response because public health told itself that it had the answer when it did not have the answer. And it decided it was ethical to do almost anything to ensure compliance with their ideas. I think that is the central problem. If you want to understand the failure in decision-making, it's really not uh, not permitting more voices at the table. Um, we can talk also about pol- politicians if in, in a second, because that's, uh, I think, super interesting.
0: You've just said that it's because uh, public health policymakers, they get into a position where they think this is the answer and they just go with it. Do you think that's just it? There's a kind of a kind of, that's the vision, we're not going to allow any other voices to distract from it, because it's too dangerous. There's nothing, there's nothing more sinister or anything like that. You think it's a practical, pragmatic thing, and they just think any dissenting views would just be an issue and a danger.
1: I think that's part of it. So I mean, like the norm in public health, Unlike the norm in science, the norm in science is you have lots and lots of voices, essentially arguing with your data, you temper the data, tell you who's right and who's wrong, and you move on. It's it's not it's not personal. It's just you're discussing ideas. In public health, there is this norm that there has to be some unanimity of messaging, right? So if I tell you that smoking is good for you and I'm in public health, I've done a, a great sin. I'm smoking is bad for you. I should not be saying that smoking is good for you because it'll hurt people. The ethical norm- basis of that is that you have some true unanimity, some true consensus in the science underlying the, the public health advice. That didn't exist in COVID. For public health, they viewed that as a problem to solve by suppressing alternate voices instead of saying, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing these kinds of recommendations. There's some credible people that think that this won't work or this is going to be harmful. So there's this like pathology inside public health where they, I mean, a kind of hubris took over. Um, for the politicians, many politicians, it, they're, they're out of their depth. They're looking at this ma- massive... Uh, problem that they need to solve and the so for them it was just well if I if I just do what Tony Fauci says or Jeremy Farrar says I can just say I'm following the science and no one's going to blame me if it goes wrong it's their fault if it's if it goes right then I've, I've done I've done the right thing um so I mean politicians I think they were solving their own particular problem um It was, I really, I I put the blame on public health and media. Uh, But I'll say for politicians, they used the propaganda arms of the the governments around the world to get their way and to smear and destroy anyone that disagreed with them, right? So, for instance, four days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, Francis Collins, who was the head of the National Institute of Health in the United States, wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me, uh, uh, Martin Kulldorff of Harvard, then of Harvard, and then uh, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, uh, fringe epidemiologists and, and called for a devastating published takedown of the premises, uh, which, to which Tony Fauci responded to with, uh, with uh, a Wired magazine article, rather than like actually trying to engage with the ideas, you know, with like, okay, wow, there's people out there, credible people that actually don't think the strategy is right, let's try to hear out what, what's going on and, and, and adapt. The decision was made to employ the connections between government and media to destroy people who disagreed and suppress dissent. The goal was to create this illusion of consensus that then provided the moral basis of the, the, the unanimity of messaging that the government was putting out about lockdown.
0: Just in terms of public health and what this means, now that this has happened, I suppose there's, there's, there's a couple of questions. What do you think the majority of people, ordinary people, have, think has happened? And also what the consequences are going to be now moving forward for when we're faced with any challenges uh, as they come down the line?
1: when the public is subject to this kind of propaganda campaign, it's going to be successful to some extent, right? So there are still a lot of people that are are thinking that, uh, well, you know, we kind of had to do this. It didn't, it, you know, it was, it was unfortunate, but uh, let's move on. A lot of people in some other parts of the world, though, are saying, well, why did we do this? What was the purpose of it? Did we actually accomplish anything? I think that that set of people Will grow very sharply over time. I think I don't know if that that's a majority of people yet, but it's it is certainly more than it was a year ago, and more than and way more than it was two years ago. And and I think um, as that majority grows, uh, because you know, think of we, we disrupted the lives of our kids for two years for what? It's going to have echo effects throughout throughout their lives from the the missed opportunities they had. We're gonna the, we have to answer what did we what did we accomplish. And could we have done better in the UK? There's an inquiry, I think. Parliament is in organising an inquiry right now. The US doesn't have one yet, but uh, but I think every country, and actually, frankly, even every lo- locality that made these decisions needs an honest assessment of the response and what went wrong. In medicine, there's a, a thing called a, a morbidity and mortality conference, an M M&M and M conference, that happens when a patient dies. And what you do is you 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 get the the doctors who were in the room who were responsible for the care of the patient. And they just have a frank conversation about what went wrong. It's not, the aim isn't to like blame and point fingers. The aim is to say, here's what went wrong. Um, Here's how we can do better next time. If we do that, I think we'll be in a much better place, but it has to be an an absolutely frank and honest conversation.
0: The public inquiry in the UK is not gonna come out till around 2025 or 2026. Uh, you could make the case, as they were, where there's so much research and statistical information and interviews to do, they want to do qualitative and quantitative. So, yeah, it does seem like there's there's some trend for some people to assess and evaluate it. There's been a lot of pressure on the government in the UK to do it. I wonder what you think about the, the, the impact of how much the attempt to smear other voices, how much you think this might have ossified, this, this kind of way of doing things, so that when in doubt maybe these measures could be imposed again, and also let's silence these people and let's impose these things. In the UK with the NHS, some people are saying there should be masking inside again and perhaps we should have all these different measures imposed to stop the resource questions, rather than saying, how do we resolve the resource issues? It will be about an impulse to uh, impose restrictions. How much do you think the legacy of that is Say, safer in the States and internationally?
1: I think that's a real danger, Alan. So, like for instance, the World Health Organization is drafting a treaty that, in effect, if uh, if, if I understand the direction they're headed, would would uh, solidify lockdown as the strategy. Sharply increased powers of of, uh, of public health to impose lockdowns in the earliest days of an outbreak. Those kinds of ideas need to be tempered. There needs to be public attention on those ideas because really, if that if that is put in place as the standard. We no longer have a, a liberal democracy, but what we have is that technocracy that can be uprooted at the, at the essentially the, the, the decision-making of a very narrow group of people over and over and over again into perpetuity. It is vital that, uh, that we tell the story of this pandemic right. For instance, there's a man named Michael Lewis who wrote a book uh, called The Premonition, where his, his, his telling of the pandemic is, there are a few brave souls who saw that the pandemic was coming in January of 2020. Uh, they weren't listened to, the, then, and then the, the, the disease spread because they weren't listened to, and therefore what we need to do is make sure that those voices of panic be uh, put up you know, sort of at the front of, of decision-making. Um, I, I actually argued opposite. I would say that, like, let's have a very broad set of people at the table and making those earth shattering decisions worldwide. Um, so that we, we have a broader, broader expertise and less panic, The panic voices were the same panic voices that said that the H1N1 epidemic was going to k- kill, you know, millions and millions of people. It was the same voices that led to the the mad cow disease disaster in the UK, for instance. Or the, or the hand, foot, and mouse disease. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a number that basically uh, it, there's a pension. If you put people who are, are, who are inclined to panic at the top of this decision-making hierarchy, they will panic over and over again, and governments will move to them, and uh, we will no longer have the, the capacity for, a, for a, a liberal democracy.
0: There's a lot of things there. I mean, one of them is modeling and the assumptions that are used that are then presented in terms of decision-making. And as you referenced, some of the uh, people that were well-known in the UK, Neil Ferguson, for instance, um, had a very different set of uh, assumptions and ideas. And also in the past, come up with models that were very, very different to what actually happened. The question about why some assumptions are used and also why the governments and politicians will go with those ones. And that also links to your point about World Health Organization and the international health regulations. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of nations, rejected that particularly in Africa and elsewhere we were talking about the developing nations
1: and one of the things about the United
0: Nations is that historically not everyone looked at it in the same way perhaps some of those with the veto in in uh, you know the, the the nations with vetoes who had more control uh, of the direction of things and then others saw it perhaps somewhat differently and and uh, you know just it's, it's It didn't actually, the, the amendments when they were just in Davos recently didn't go through in the way that they thought they might. And there was many challenges. And in fact, there was quite a lot of discussion about the idea of sovereignty versus an international organization making decisions. But as Sajid Javid said in the UK, well, we've got sovereignty, but we just want to make sure that the next time there's an issue, everyone responds to it uh, and, and forcefully. So... I'm not so sure it was necessarily the World Health Organization itself or people there, because you can see that there's people within nation states that are very keen to push things uh, and all of that. I mean, I wonder just in terms of, because you've talked a lot about what's happening in India and Africa and elsewhere, where perhaps some people have just been focused, why do you think it is that there's a bit more of a, uh, a different reaction uh, uh by those in those countries and then i also want to get on to why things have played out so differently in africa and in india as well if, from your point of view let's
1: take the ihrs the, the international health regulations as, as, a, as an example right so um there what the biden administration proposed was essentially to uh to to ask member states to uh to to, to report more more quickly and more vigorously all whatever whatever they find and to, ex- to strengthen the capacity due to surveillance, right? Sounds sounds uh, for infectious diseases. Sounds reasonable, I mean, sounds fine. Um, the problem is like, uh, think about South Africa, right? So South Africa has a pretty good surveillance infrastructure for infectious diseases. They were the first to, to identify uh, the Omicron variant. They were immediately punished with travel bans and restrictions that made the lives of South Africans much worse. Uh, The the response of Western governments to whenever a a government in Africa or other uh, poor parts of the world finds this will be exactly that, to isolate and and overreact, even though those those restrictions do absolutely nothing for public health. Omicron was already spread throughout the world when South Africa happened to find it. The problem, the reason why they found it is because their infrastructure was good. Um, So it is perfectly understandable to me why a lot of uh, poor nations are saying, no, this is ridiculous. Like what you're essentially doing is setting up an infrastructure to punish us. For, uh, for, for finding these, these diseases. If you're going to have a, a, a treaty like this or an international regulation like this, you have to have some assurances that the response to the information provided will be, will be proportionate and reasonable. And that I've not seen at the World Health Organization. It's just, let's develop this infrastructure. Let's develop uh, the capacity for nation states to impose essentially quasi-dictatorial powers whenever we, whenever we get a signal. Uh, That's the direction of the of the uh, the negotiations, and uh, until there is some realization that those signals are often noisy, and that there are other values that are quite important, much more important than than even the infectious diseases embedded into the decision making, we're we're never going to get consensus, and uh, you know, and rightly so. Poor countries have many more things to deal with than COVID. I mean, COVID is very far from the most important and dangerous thing happening as far as infectious diseases in Africa, for instance.
0: Why do you think it is in Africa? Um, that we've seen a very different pattern. Is it just demographics? Is it just age groups? Is it what? What is it? The way people live. Why is it that? Is it the way it's recorded? What's going on with Africa? Not South Africa, but the rest of Africa.
1: I think it is. It's partly the uh, the counting. I mean, they don't have the same testing infrastructure that we have in in uh, the US UK you know and so they they probably are undercounting cases uh, or, or 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 deaths from covid but i don't think that that's the primary thing the primary thing is something you said Alan, and that is that it, i think only 3% of africa is over the age of 65 and that means that they're automatically going to be less vulnerable to covid covid is a disease that discriminates by age um, thousand-fold difference in mortality risk if, if you got if you're older versus if you're younger
0: uh, i've heard you talk before and uh... You know about the impacts in India, for instance. And it's really important to understand the policy consequences that when lockdowns are announced, what that then means in terms of people and working and, and moving and traveling. Do you want to talk a bit about some of those examples like in India, just so people get a bit of a, a context in how these things play out globally?
1: India was, is, is interesting because it is, it is such an unequal society. Um, the, uh, the the earliest lockdowns uh, that imp- imposed by the prime minister were nationwide, and uh, you know there are 10 million migrant workers living in the big cities of India who live hand to mouth, meaning that they they buy you know coconuts or whatever uh, they sell them on, on the street. Uh, with the money that they get from the coconuts, they buy coconuts for the next day to sell, and also food for their families or, or for themselves. Um, and and the next when the next day comes. They have no savings, that's all they have is the coconuts. Um, when Modi imposed the lockdown, that meant their, li- their entire savings was gone, their living was gone because no one was out in the street to buy the coconuts. Um, and then he, they, the order the came down that they had to go home. Home meant uh, sometimes a thousand miles away, a village a thousand miles away. They came to the big cities to make a living. Um, and uh, a thousand died en route in crowded trains and buses, some, some walked a hundred miles uh, and, and died en route. A thousand people, 10 million workers traveling back to their home villages overnight and a thousand died en route. Um, and, and they're all poor, right? they're, 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 it's the poorest. Um, in uh, July of 2020, there was, a, I think maybe August 2020, there was a study of antibodies in Mumbai that found that this, in the slums of Mumbai, the, uh, the prevalence of, of antibodies was something like 70%. But in the richer parts of Mumbai, is 20%. Um, lockdown was uh, a, a, a cruel thing in India. And it didn't serve the purpose, right? The disease spread anyways. Um, in, in January 2021, they, in, in India, they, were, they had about 100 million doses of, of a vaccine. Um, they distributed it online, guaranteeing that poor older people wouldn't get it because they didn't have access to the, to, to the internet. Uh, it's, it's heartbreaking to see what happened in India. In India, the, the, there's, there is an older population. There's still a lower fraction of the population is old than, than in the, the richer parts of the world. But there is an older, middle class uh, and higher population that really was vulnerable uh, to the disease. And instead of using the strategy, uh, the resources they had to protect the people that were vulnerable, they used it to put in place lockdown policies that just ended up hurting the poor.
0: Because in India, they also have the Aadhaar um, digital surveillance, basically, engagement, which, again, doesn't engage with all people in the same way. But so they've got like 1.3 billion people, I think, on there. right? And you kind of wonder why the policy gap between exactly what you said, why could you then not use something like that in that context to do something? And it spells uh, a lot of questions. It throws a lot of questions up for any of those Um, digital ID, health applications, or what they talk about COVID passes. And we know that, you know, you were talking about the World Health Organization and the EU have both contracted uh, Deutsche Telekom T-Systems to do an international global COVID pass. Now, here's a question, right? You've got a situation where it's become clear that the current uh, jabs, the mRNA, do not stop transmissions, and um, they don't prevent you from from catching it. and so then what is the purpose of, even if there wasn't a moral and a political question, but what's the, the medical and the scientific question for having a pass, COVID pass? And yet here we are in a situation where 194 countries, that looks like it's gonna be a default position to travel, that you have some kind of health ID pass digitally done. Um, and then as big questions, because in the UK, we fought the mandates and we got them, um, and we fought the COVID passport and we got it overturned. But obviously it doesn't take a genius to work out that if you have to travel with it, then it, you know, then that all of a sudden people all have to be on it. And then, you know, that that, that then seeps into what you're doing domestically as well. There's a real danger of that. From your point of view, when you think about policy and you think about these um ideas you think about the damages of lockdowns and making it clear or the questions of things like these passes and making it clear how do you think what's the most effective well obviously you have a lot of signatories on your declaration you've you've got a lot of international attention what do you think is the most the best way to get the arguments across and win win some of these uh ideas and argument
1: we have to make the intellectual case uh, broadly that uh that these kinds of of restrictions don't accomplish anything from a public health point of view and are harmful um but i think in every country the we have to start to convince uh public health leaders that these are, these are not the right thing to do that, they're, that they are they're, they're going to actually make their own jobs harder um because people will lose trust in them um, and, 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 you know, I think uh, it's hard to change, as an American, it's hard to change policy in the United States, much less much less worldwide. Um, so in so my, my, my view, my job is to help make the intellectual case as publicly as I can, um, and, uh, and then help uh, empower people, um, leadership leaders around the world to, to start pushing back. Um, you know, the, the, the moral and ethical case for these kinds of passports, Alan, is just there isn't one right? Essentially, it's just discriminatory for no purpose. Um, you have a, a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission. Well, that means if I, if I take the vaccine, I don't protect you. I don't protect anybody else other than myself. It's thus a private decision to be made in consultation with your physician. It's not a, a decision that has these kinds of like public consequences, especially when, when we know that so many people have had the disease and recovered and thereby have probably better protection against passing disease on than other people. Um, A a new variant comes along, and then that that evades immunity, the vaccines, and um, it it means that we really don't have a technology to stop the spread. If we pretend and structure our society uh, pretending like we have such technology, we will make unethical decisions, discriminatory ones. In Canada, 6 million people who aren't vaccinated, many of whom probably already have the disease, um, are not permitted to fly. They're not even permitted to fly to the United States, because the United States. Uh, checks for vaccination at, when they land. So they're they're literally, the freedom of movement, a fundamental freedom of liberal societies is gone for 6 million people in Canada for no public health purpose. And what are they th- going to think about public health this, this, with this irrational decision? I mean, I think um, public health leaders around the world need to understand the danger they face. Their jobs require the public to trust them. And that public trust is If it's not already gone, it's on its way to being gone. And if they continue down this path of uh, of making irrational, unethical uh, recommendations and decisions uh, that that discriminate against vast classes of people uh, for for no discernible public health purpose, that trust trust will be gone forever.
0: How different do you think things are now in terms of being able to make certain arguments and win over uh, policymakers and influence in the press and also the public?
1: We're still in a place where there's, there's this sort of like uh, a censorship of, of, uh, of alternate views. Um, so, I, for instance, I joined Twitter in September of 2021 um, after years of saying I'm never going to do it. Uh, you know, I'm an academic, so I'm like, okay, what do I need Twitter for? It turns out it's quite important because you have to, you have to, you reach, that's how you reach the press. That's how you reach uh, lots and lots of people um, very, easy, very easily and quickly. And on Twitter, there are certain things you're not allowed to say. And I know that, I'm not gonna say them, right? So I, I, if I have thoughts about, uh, about for whom the vaccine is useful, for whom it's not useful, I'm not gonna say it on Twitter. I'm just not, I don't, don't I mean, the, what, what, like that will just get me kicked off and then I'll lose my ability to, talk, to say other things that I am allowed to say. And my sense is that the set of things you are allowed to say is much wider than it was a year ago. Um, it's not possible to look at what's happened and say that, that public health got it right. Uh, it was it has been a utter disaster for the credibility of public health. And even the social media platforms and governments that were imposing censorship are, are, are understanding that, look, if they if they censor views for long enough, um, it still gets out and just their trust is undermined. Like in this, in the old Soviet Union, uh, the, it wasn't that the truth wasn't told. It was just told uh, under the table with these samastat passed around from person to person. So everyone looks around and knows somebody who who, got, who had the vaccine and then got got COVID. Well, what are they going to think that the, va- the vaccine stops COVID from, from stops people from getting COVID? Well, obviously not. You, and the, the government can say it until they blue in the face, but no one will believe them. Um, I think that's starting starting to be where we are with a lot of issues. The, do the mask mandates work? I mean, everyone <laughs> you can look around and say, okay, well, I wore a mask and I, I still got I still got COVID. Um, I, I I mean, I think uh, a lot of the the kind of attempt to suppress truth, tr- the truth by governments in order to control behavior has backfired, and is increasingly increasingly we're going to get uh, a lot of, of people saying, "Well, why were why were we not allowed to talk about this?" You know, I'm actually heartened by that. I think the uh, the conversation is opening up.
0: It is interesting that you say all this and about, for instance, mass and people know that they've got it and they don't stop it, but. At the moment, my understanding is there's an attempt to overturn the overturning of the mask mandate to get it back in all federal transport areas by the Biden administration. Even in the New York Times, there was an op-ed a couple of days ago just saying mask mandates don't work, even if they were trying to make the argument still for masks. Um, So whilst it's true what you're saying, there's still an impulse to regulate in that way. And in the same way um, in the EU has legislated to make um, social media companies not do certain have certain things on there, all sorts of speech controls. And we've got something called the online safety bill that's going through Parliament at the moment in the UK where the government's outsourcing to big tech to do even more limits to expression and free speech.
1: I think that, that those kinds of restrictions on speech are a great danger to our societies. It's, I mean I think maybe the people are pushing them. imagine that there's some like saints that will like will be implementing them that will, will that can tell the difference between true and false and will make sure that only true gets told in the public square. That is nonsense, right So the, the, there is no guru that has access to truth, uh, you know, from on high that can impose it and say, okay, well, you're saying you're, you're, what you're saying is false because I know because I'm, I'm omniscient. Um, there, there isn't, there's no one in, public, in the public square that, is, that actually has that kind of knowledge. The only way to get to truth is by allowing discussion and open discussion and debate, even if it looks messy, which it will be always. Um, and so I think those, are, those kinds of, of, of initiatives are quite dangerous to liberal democracies. I think we should push back as hard as we can against that. Uh, something like the Great Barrington Operation is a cry for help, really. Like it was essentially, it's like uh, we were saying things that lots of people were thinking. That's why it got the attention it did. It because the ideas that in them were not any anything particularly novel, honestly, Alan. I mean, they were they were um, they were the old pandemic plan. They were the the a, an expression of common sense, and so it resonated and went viral because it was an expression of common sense. It's also why the public authorities felt so, so strongly that they had to, to, to suppress it in the, with the, using these extraordinary propagandist means um, because they, for them, it was a danger. Now the public was going to have its say. It's a conversation that is going to be much easier to have, whether we should allow these kinds of free, free discussions once the fear of COVID has subsided. And I think, Alan, we are near that. I don't see the same level of fear of COVID as we once did. And so people are starting to come back to themselves saying, well, what do we really value? And I think we will win that argument, but we do have to make it. There's still forces that want to institutionalize these kinds of suppression.
0: We're now in a situation though where many of the consequences continue of lockdowns and restrictions. So on the one hand, we have in the UK, millions of people waiting on waiting lists for the NHS. We still have some restrictions in place that they've been told to end them, the trust, but they have not still. But also, in terms of the cost of living crisis, uh, which may well have been exacerbated by current events in Ukraine, but it was coming right down the pipeline way before this, as we know. Um, and so the question becomes your point, you know, Great Barrington Declaration, why did you jettison the pandemic strategy to the governments? Why did they do that? But here we have the consequences of. Uh, of the lockdowns, both in terms of cost of living and in terms of our health. How do we uh, reassert, in your view, the idea that the old pandemic strategy, the, the cost benefit analysis, the uh, rationally handling the situation um, gets put back front and center and, and not a repeat of lockdowns in these MPIs?
1: So I think the forces that pushed for these lockdowns, that, that made these catastrophic errors, they still hold the commanding heights of power right? So they still are in a place to to set the terms of these inquiries. I think the key thing is, I don't think that they will stay in those commanding heights of power. I think the public is pushing back in many, many ways around this, both politically and where their feet are. And so I think the political environment will determine whether these these things are enshrined, these, these strategies are enshrined, or whether we jettison the, uh, the the old ideas of pandemic management, which include focus protection, cost-benefit analysis, a broad set of voices, uh, and understanding that our democracies, our liberal democracies are, are, are too valuable to throw away and that stoking panic and fear and propaganda are not ethical tools of public health. I think all of those principles were the old plan for a reason, because they were more consistent with the values of our societies. We're in a perilous time right now. It's a precarious moment where... You could have these powers that that don't want to be, they don't want to be, known. I mean, no one wants to be known that they were like made these catastrophic mistakes. They want to institutionalize these strategies because they want to pretend as if they got things right. I just don't see how they're going to succeed. They they still hold the commanding heights of power, but I don't think they'll hold that for long because it's so evident that they got things so deeply wrong. And And the strategies they're pushing are not consonant with the values that I think most people... In, in the west hole, which is that our, our liberal society is worth worth preserving and even in the face of a pandemic it's still worth preserving. Um, we should have policies in place that uh, protect us against infectious disease but those policies are the ones we followed forever, which is you know focus protection, cost benefit, uh, wide set of voices at the table when scientific decisions are being made.
0: We were told in the UK 15 million jabs to freedom people knew that it was largely, you know, soon when the vaccines were coming out, it was largely something that really uh, impacted vulnerable and elderly groups. Uh, We then got to a situation where when everyone was vaccinated over certain ages, it kept going down and then it became children. And now it's passed for six months and above in the US. Uh, And there's some judicial reviews, some challenges in the UK for, 11 to 16-year-olds and 5 to 11-year-olds who it seems like proportionately, I mean, there's such low statistically, almost statistically irrelevant from the point of view of COVID So than any other risk that might come about, which with anything, there's always some element of risk. And it seems that there are a few more risks with some of this, particularly for younger people alongside it. Just why, how do you think this has come about? And why do you think we're at this point where... This would be the case. I mean, you may have a different view, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Well, I, I, uh, well OK, Certainly, so there's lots of reasons. I think it was multifactorial. But like I said, one, one particular reason that, that grabs me is that so when we did the randomized trials for these, these vaccines, um, especially the MRA vaccines, I think that the, the primary clinical endpoint was uh, the, the prevention of symptomatic infection. Uh, that's actually not that useful, an epidemiological endpoint. On the one hand, you could have had as an endpoint prevention of, of death, right? That means everyone would want to take a vaccine that prevents death. Um, but the, the, the vaccine trials weren't designed around that, especially the mRNA ones. They didn't enroll enough older people, and they didn't have that as a primary endpoint. Um, the other one could have been prevention of all infection, right? Then, then if you prevent all infection, then it's useful to get to herd immunity, to, 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 to you know, suppress the disease, to spread down to zero. That also wasn't an endpoint. And so we have this like information dearth uh, about what the vaccine is useful for. It, it turns out it's really only useful for focus protection, uh, much less useful for for, uh, for people who aren't subject to that, that risk. Uh, so you have this information dearth that's led to this like this this policy confusion. A lot of the the push to vaccinate uh, children and so on. I think there's two imp- two impetus two impetive <laughs> is that there's our word. Um, and there's, two, there's two reasons why. Um, the uh, one is this continuing mistaken notion that vaccines stop disease spread. So therefore, uh, if, we, if it stops disease spread, we have to vaccinate children so that they also don't spread the disease, And then, uh, which, which is false. The vaccine does not stop disease spread. It's not necessary to vaccinate children because the disease will spread whether they're vaccinated or not. Um, and, the, and the second notion is this, this, there are consequences of panicking people, especially panicking people around their kids. Um, and so you have uh, you have like this residual fear in certain uh, you know, certain group of parents, um, caused by the by false public health messaging, frankly, that their children are vulnerable to bad outcomes if they should get COVID. Um, and so I think those are the two reasons why you're seeing um, uh, at least Western governments push to vaccinate uh, very very young kids.
0: And if there was one then we have a declaration it's got far less signatures than your one but it's called you know the together declaration in the uk but one of the reasons why is we together think it's really important to get the public engaged and we we do pressurize and campaign and lobby politicians and the press uh, and try and get eyeballs out but we really want to get the public engaged and discussing things but if you could If there's one thing that you would want to see happen and you would encourage people to do over the next period, um, it's a tough question, but it's one to finish on. What would you say would be the thing you'd like to see and what ordinary people can engage with as well in terms of um, perhaps steering things in a direction you think would be beneficial for everyone? Well, there are
1: these like big things like the World Health Organization Treaty and and then like, you know, big political movements. I think really most of the, Most of the uh, the best things I've seen happen have come at the local level. Um, You know, moms and dads organizing to make sure that their kids have regular, some sort of regular life. Um, I'd say to people, uh, look, uh, you know what your values are, and you know that 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 being manipulated by people to make you scared is not the right thing for your life. Speak up, get involved at the local level. If, If speak up at the local school board meetings. Um, speak up at your local town councils. Uh, make sure that they that the powers that be understand what your values really are. We have a, we still do have liberal democracies in 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 the West, and those liberal democracies respond to the, the the will of the people. Um, don't let yourself be manipulated or scared into thinking that your your voice doesn't matter because it really does.
0: They are brilliant words to finish on, uh, Jay I Thank you so much for your time. I know you're really busy. It's been really great talking. Uh, to you and we really appreciate it um and in the spirit of that we will encourage everyone to carry on going out to their local elected representatives and to make their voice heard together thank you jay and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future and hopefully we'll get you to speak in the uk at some point as well it will be great
1: thank you alan It's a delight to speak with you